you gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome one of the greatest live bands of all time, the Jesus Lizard. Plus, we'll review the much-buzzed new album from the electro-pop duo, Yacht. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing, creating speaker systems for the iPod and the computer, allowing music fans to listen critically. Online at alltechlansing.com. Hear what's next. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, according to uh, an interesting little piece on the Ars Technica website recently based on some data from the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, 2010 is finally going to be a watershed moment in the history of recorded music. This is when, in the United States, sales of digital music will exceed those of physical product. We've been moving steadily toward this point for some time. At the end of 2008, digital music accounted for 20% of all revenue from music sales worldwide. It's been increasing steadily, five percentage points every year since 2005. Worldwide, it's going to eclipse physical product by 2016, but next year is the year in the United States. Now, it's important to note, Jim, the CD is not dead yet. People may be surprised to notice that 65% of the music sales in the U.S. in 2009 are still compact discs. But the trend here is down, down, down. It's getting lower every year. Most of those CDs are sold at the big box retail stores. Walmart, Best Buy, and Target make up nearly 50% of the CD sales in the entire U.S. market. And anytime you walk into a Walmart or a Best Buy, you'll notice that the number of CDs they're carrying seem to shrink almost on a weekly basis. It's down to an end cap by the gum at, <laughs> yeah. the, at the cash register. So the big outlet for CDs is shrinking. And uh, it's inevitable that they're eventually going to phase out CDs altogether. Meanwhile, iTunes continues to gobble up a bigger share of the uh, sales market every year. This year, they're up to 25%. That's all sales of music in the United States. iTunes has 25% of it. It's only a matter of time before they're commanding about half the market with digital sales. So an inevitable story here, physical product on the way out, digital sales on the way in. We already knew that, but it looks like 2010 is going to be the year where it all turns around in the U.S. Well, nobody will ever accuse us of not tracking this. You know, nobody's going to wake up one day and say, how did this happen all of a sudden? Hey, the guys at Sound Opinions have been talking about it every week. I mean, I kind of feel like we're, we're like the last blacksmiths in the world who, who are noticing these things coming out of the Ford factory, right? Yeah.
That's a great melody, Caravan, as popularized by the great Duke Ellington in the 30s, but that is Les Paul's version of that particular song. Les Paul, who died at the age of 94 on August 13th, one of the inventors of a solid-body electric guitar that is still being used by countless guitarists today, and also a pioneer of multi-track recording. Jim, it seems that everything that could be said has been said about the greatness of Les Paul, but as usual on Sound Opinions, we've got a couple of things to add. Well, I think, Greg, one of the things I missed in the many tributes to Les Paul, who was certainly deserving, was the fact that there are two kinds of people in rock and roll. You know, there are the Les Paul guitarists and there are the Fender guitarists. Leo Fender actually got out there first with a mass-produced solid-body electric guitar in the 40s, his broadcaster, you know, followed by the Stratocaster, the Telecaster. You know, Fenders are dirty, nasty, mean, and working class, right? <laughs> Whereas Les Pauls are elegant and about virtuosity and sustain and tone. I'm the Fender guy here, and you're the Les Paul guy. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You're exaggerating because I appreciate both styles, but I have to say that uh, Les Paul's recordings with Mary Ford were a big part of my household growing up. My parents adored those records, so I heard them a lot. And the one thing that came across to me about Les Paul's playing was the tone of that guitar, uh, that singing sustain steeped in melody. In addition to his innovations with multi-track recording, I think a lot of these innovations carried through into the rock era. And one thing that I don't think Les Paul is giving credit for is that he remained curious and involved. In fact, uh, he had many friends among rock guitarists. He often said that Jeff Beck was his favorite guitar player. And the tribute was returned by Jeff Beck. They became lifelong friends. They played on each other's records. They sat in with each other. And Beck, I think, took a lot from Les Paul's playing into his own. And I think you can hear it on the song that I'm going to play in tribute to Les Paul from Jeff Beck. It's called Beck's Bolero. It's a collaboration that he uh, worked on in 1966 with Jimmy Page, sort of a busman's holiday while Beck was in the Yardbirds. And Keith Moon sat in on drums. It was a three-hour recording (laughs) session. He wasn't supposed to be there. Pete Townsend did not like sharing his drummer with anybody, so Keith Moon sort of snuck out and played on it. In this track, I think you're going to hear the seeds of heavy metal because of that heavy tone that you get in the middle of the song, and also in its three-part nature, the sort of a uh, template for progressive rock. But above all, that sweet singing tone of, of Jeff Beck's guitar. Here it is, Beck's Bolero on Sound Opinions. Beck's Bolero with Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page on guitar in tribute to another great guitar player, Les Paul, dead at the age of 94.
Greg, we have another sad obituary. Hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as Les Paul, but certainly Jim Dickinson, dead at 67, deserves just as much praise. The founder, really, the core of the Memphis sound. Born in Little Rock, Arkansas, grew up in Chicago, uh, was on his way to becoming a history teacher when his wife convinced him, you really, you know, you love music too much. This ought to be what you're doing. Moves to Memphis, defines that sound both as a musician and as a producer. That was the, the Rolling Stones' Wild Horses we heard on the way in. Dickinson recorded that song, also recorded Aretha Franklin, Sam and Dave, later on in life, uh, Big Star, and then The Replacements. A wonderful guy with four decades, or if not more, of musical history. Both you and I interviewed him several times, and he would just talk about music for hours. He was a sweet, sweet guy. You know, you'd call down to his studio, he'd pick up the phone or his wife, and you'd get him right away, and he would talk for two or three hours about whatever it is you had on your mind. If it was music, he was like a walking encyclopedia, and he was really steeped in that culture of Memphis and the northern hill country in Mississippi. Uh, knew all the characters down there, knew all the history, had worked with many of the musicians. His sons were steeped in it as well. If you were mm-hmm. raised in the Jim Dickinson household, you grew up around this music and, and that culture. And his sons, Luther and Cody, went on to form the North Mississippi All-Stars with their dad's tutelage and you know a fine band carrying on the family legacy. But you know, just the sweetness of the guy and the fact that he had this ability to transform anything he worked on. When Daniel Lenoir uh, worked with Bob Dylan on his 1997 comeback album, Time Out of Mind. Dylan said, well, who do you got for the band? And and Lenoir said, I got Dickinson. And Dylan was like, that's all you need. Absolutely. I mean, we could do three or four shows on music uh, Dickinson has played or recorded, but uh, we're both excited about these new Big Star reissues. The first and second Big Star albums are out in a new package. We're going to do an album dissection uh, on those uh, down the road a little bit. But uh, Dickinson produced the third record when the band was sort of falling apart. It was down to just Alex Chilton and the drummer Jody Stevens. An amazing sounding record. I mm-hmm. think of all the records that Big Star did, that's the one that has the, it's the sound that grabs you first. This is Thank You Friends by Big Star in tribute to its producer Jim Dickinson on Sound Opinions. Thank you Thank You Friends by Big Star from the third album, also known as Sister Lovers, produced by Jim Dickinson, Dead at 67. 
you're listening to Sound Opinions and you're hearing a little bit of Seasick, a song by the Jesus Lizard, one of the great bands of the 90s as far as I'm concerned. Uh, a few things to know about this band. I think the musicians in this band were top-notch. Mac McNeely, a defining drummer. I think the John Bonham of his generation in a mm. lot of ways, Jim. Dwayne Dennison, uh, an incredibly skilled guitar player who's uh, worked in a number of contexts, including in the jazz realm, and, and David William Sims on bass, a uh, fine songwriter and a... Uh, a guy who pushed that bass into the forefront of the mix in spite of all the mayhem that was going on around him. And last but not least, the lead vocalist, David Yao. The studio records were one thing. They definitely defined that post-punk sound in the 90s and were influential on bands like uh, Nirvana and Mudhoney. But at the same time, we had a frontman who was unparalleled in what he would do on stage to entertain an audience. I think the only performers that I could put in the same league with him might be somebody like Iggy Pop with the Stooges. Absolutely. Uh, Yao was in a class by himself. We were fortunate to get the band as they reunited on their current tour, playing shows for the first time in nearly a decade. They were in town because they were about to play a homecoming show at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago, and we sat down with all four band members for an interview and a live performance. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Highly improbable event here. Um, you formed in 1987, broke up in 1999, played your last show in Sweden, of all places. Uh, one of the most influential bands of that era, I think the best live band of the 90s, as far as I'm concerned. Now, 10 years later, you're here back together again for a number of tour dates, including uh, Pitchfork Music Festival here in Chicago recently. Um, so why now? Um, we're all broke. No, not really. <laughs> <Boring>. Um <laughs> It just seems like it's a good time. We just ran out of, there's really no reasons not to. Like the Touch and Go is remastering, reissuing the, the back catalog with, with bonus goodies. And I think what kind of initiated it was we were asked to be on All Tomorrow's Parties last year. And that came up because Mike Patton was curating it. That's the big rock festival in Europe. Yeah. And um, so he's, he put the question to me and, and he said, what would it take to get the Jesus Lizard back together to come over and play some shows? And I said, oh, God, I don't know. Let me, let me find out. And we ran it past everyone. And we couldn't get it together in time, scheduling, et cetera, et cetera. But at least we started talking about it. And that's kind of, I think, what got the whole thing rolling. And Mac, you were sort of the wild card in this equation, right? I mean, you left the band in 1997. Why'd you pick it up again? Uh, well, uh when I left, I uh, had two kids that were very young, and it was very hard to balance that with the band. And that was really the reason that I left. It wasn't due to any kind of a, you know, thing with the band itself. Now my kids are older. I have added another one, so I have three kids, uh, and it's just easier to do this, particularly that it's not some kind of a touring band like you, like we did in the old days where we'd go out for six weeks at a time you know sometimes and uh, that was just extremely hard especially you know by itself but when you have a family as well so this isn't like that this is a little bit more where we can take specific uh, chunks of time and say we'll work with this and then let's have this time off and so it's a lot more it's a lot more favorable to everyone's schedule to do it this way so it's it's a lot easier now it's like a paid vacation yes very much well, we have this legendary band here in the studio. They are back together. Everybody's got instruments. Can you guys uh, play a song for us? Sure. I think what we're going to do, <laughs> Greg Cock calls it blah, blah, blah. We call it Bloody Mary.
makes me feel blank. That makes me feel blank like I missed. She lied in the bath in the water. And I said to her, How happy are you? Just to be alive. That is Bloody Mary by the Jesus Lizard live on Sound Opinions. We'll be back with more of the Jesus Lizard after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Greg will add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're in the studio with the four original members of the influential Chicago noise rock band, the Jesus Lizard. Singer David Yao, guitarist Dwayne Dennison, bassist David Williams Sims, and drummer Mac McNeely. 
I wanted to break down uh, some of the things that are special about this band. It struck me, Mr. McNeely and Mr. Sims, as we were watching you perform that first live track, Bloody Mary, I was thinking uh, what I thought back in the day, that this is a James Brown groove, but attacked by John Bonham of Led Zeppelin in a really bad mood. Uh, There's a swing to the rhythm that you guys have that a lot of rock bands just do not get. Yeah, that's... uh... Yeah, I would agree with with that as far as, like, I don't see a lot of bands that seem to have a lot of uh, movement within their rhythm section like that. And uh, that is a goal to uh, not make it so stiff. You know, it's like to uh, let it kind of breathe a bit. And uh, I've always tried to do that because it appeals to me playing-wise, you know, to, like, you know, you can make a song heavy and hard, but if it's just going to be real stiff, then you lose any feeling that, you know, you can impart to it. So that's... That's what we try to do. And yet, David Sims, when the band started out, the first Jesus Lizard record was was using a drum machine. Completely different feel. Right. When we started out, actually, uh, Dwayne and David and I were living in Austin, and, and Dwayne sort of had this idea of recording some songs that he had. And we used a drum machine because it was easy, and I think we weren't really sure that we even were looking to make it a kind of a, an ongoing band. And uh, we recorded the first record with the drum machine, and... You know, we kind of liked everything about it except the drum machine, so we just decided to just fix that and move forward as a living, breathing, touring rock thing. Did it did it click uh, as something special for you as soon as you, you hooked up with Mac behind the drum set? Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I had seen Mac play before uh, in a band called 86 when he lived in Atlanta, and, and so I, I knew he was really, really good. And yeah, playing with him was, was like, it was everything I hoped it would be. <laughs> Well, David Sims and David Yao, you were both in a band called Scratch Acid out of Austin. Uh, When you formed the Jesus Lizard after Scratch Acid broke up, was it a case of a continuation in your mind, or did you feel like you needed to start over from scratch? Oh, geez, I don't know. Well, uh, I think that it was was both a a continuation and an intentional departure. We didn't want to repeat ourselves. Obviously, we did, but... um, we were only 50% of Scratch Acid, and we were only 50% of the Jesus Lizard. And in order to make the the total of any band, you got to have another half. And uh, these guys are so much better than Ray or Brett that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that it, oh, you know, it, it, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. What was the question? Well, well, I'm just curious. Dwayne and David Sims brought a lot of musical elements into the band's sound and songwriting. It's a part of your repertoire, I think, that's really underrated. Uh, people think about your stage performances, but there were also actual songs. Dwayne, uh, did you see this as a song-oriented band? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we did without really thinking about it all that much. Uh, I mean, if we weren't, what would it be like? It would be long, what, jammy kind of songs or sort of noise collage kind of things, and we, we dabbled in that. But no, it was, for the most part, short, sharp, get to the point, get out songs and we we spent a lot of time whittling those songs down Mm -hmm. and because you came from the independent punk scene people just assumed that it was going to be about three chords and that was it and that's all you could really play uh but you guys are actually really good musicians and you just didn't bring it all to the party every time right absolutely um and if anything it was also about maybe just avoiding the cliches that were around and probably are still around at least most of the time i'd like to think we we were pretty good at that Well, how about another song, guys? Really? (laughs) Which one? Oh, which one? Uh, This song, Greg Cock calls it blah, blah, blah. We (laughs) call it Mouth Breather. (laughs) 
Mouth Breather by the Jesus Lizard on Sound Opinions. We're here in the Jim and K Maybe studio. I'm Jim Deergottis. He's Greg Cott with the Jesus Lizard. I always loved that song because I knew what it was about. <laughs> one of the, or I thought I knew what it was about. One of, one of the rare uh, lizard songs where, where you could kind of suss out the lyrics, David. Your vocals famously are from another world. Michael Azerod in, in Our Band Could Be Your Life said that you sounded like the, uh, the hostage in the basement with duct tape over his mouth screaming <laughs> through that duct tape. Uh, my buddy Dave Sprague said you were, a, you were a preacher speaking in tongues. Were you ever frustrated by your, your vocal instrument? Did you ever wish it could do more things? you ever wish you could be like you know, Celine <laughs> Dion and, uh, and sing with auto-tune? hours and... a day. <laughs> Man... It's weird when you're not when you're as bad as I am at your job. It's hard to have any self. Uh, blah blah blah. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> well, but David, how many vocalists can we say this about in rock and roll? Nobody sounds like David Yao. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm only a little feller too. <laughs> I would like to say though, you know, since the band was a band so many years ago. I've quit wetting the bed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Everyone's going to be relieved to hear that, David. Uh, when you guys listen back to those early records, uh, you mentioned that Touch and Go is going to be reissuing them. When you listen to them now, do they still hold up for you? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I, I guess I, I've had time to think about that, too. Is uh, There's not a lot of hocus-pocus on those records. There's not a lot of production tricks. There's not a lot of effects on, on the instruments and such. And to me, when an album sounds dated, that's usually what does it, right? It's usually like something becomes popular and then everybody uses it and then suddenly you hear, the minute you hear that sound, it's whatever, 1985 all over again. Like right now, all the auto-tune vocals everywhere you go, the plague that's, that's taken over popular music, everyone's going to know, well, it's 2009 by, by that sound. And um, mostly... On those albums, what you hear is what you get. I mean, it's fairly straightforward guitar, bass, drums, vocals. And so you can really just concentrate on the songs and the performances and, 
and I think that's kind of part of what makes it hold up. It seems like other stuff, other albums that sound good to me from previous eras also has seemed to have that going for it. Um, it's fairly straightforward. Would you have wanted to do more if there weren't so many limitations? I mean, would you have wanted to spend more time in the studio? I don't know if that's necessarily any better because we did it both ways. And sometimes it works for you and sometimes it works against you. Because if you have too much time, it seems like you second-guess yourself and you waste time needly tweaking and adding things that don't add anything. Um, sometimes if you just have a very frugal, you know, get-her-done kind of approach, it forces you to be resourceful and uh, make better use of your time and, and just get done and don't, set, don't think about it so much. You know, David Yao, there's an aspect of your personality that comes out in your live performances that makes people want to see your shows. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a way to put it. So being in the studio, was it difficult to be David Yao, confined by four walls without a big crowd in front of you? Um, a lot of those recordings, a whole, probably most of those recordings, I had a whole lot to drink while we were doing them. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember when we did Head... We had made a checklist of uh, the songs that we'd finished, and one morning we came in to do uh, whatever was remaining, and uh, I said, well, we still have to do pastoral. The guys said, no, 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 we did that yesterday, and I said, well, I, I didn't do vocals on it, and they played for me um, what I'd done, and that's what is on the record, and I was so drunk when we recorded pastoral that I didn't remember it the next day. So, um, no, I was just as much a fool in the studio as I am on stage. I didn't get hurt while we were playing <laughs> in the studio very often. How many times, uh, David, did you keep a tally? How many times hurt on stage? How many times arrested or threatened by the law? <laughs> I know how many times arrested, hurt, no, probably about five each show. Five each show? Yeah. <laughs> they have to carry you off afterwards. A couple times. I remember the Lollapalooza incident. You exposed yourself, and, they were, and the cops were tracking you from tour date to tour date, I believe, for a while. <laughs> Mm. Unless it's just been blown up in legend after. No, no, they arrested me at that show, and then I was uh, <clears throat> banned from the wonderful Hamilton County for a year, which was a huge drag because, I mean, anybody wants to hang out in yep. Cincinnati. Cincinnati for a, <laughs> but I had to somehow figure out what to do for a year. Well, it's like you and Mapplethorpe, both, both, you know, in trouble in Cincinnati. When I first got to jail, the cops were so condescending. They were such pricks. They were like, uh, whoa, hey, rock star. We haven't had a rock star in here since Ted Nugent. And uh, they were asking if I could give them my autograph. And I said, yeah, you bet when I get out of here. And there was just so much bull dung that uh, <clears throat> I, I just couldn't believe the kind of crap. They, they made me take off my wedding ring like I was going to, I don't know, make a jailbreak with my wedding ring or <laughs> maybe hang myself. Make a shiv out of your wedding ring. <clears throat> and so, yeah, when, when I was leaving... One cop said, hey, wait, what about that autograph? And so I signed a piece of paper and said, you suck. And <laughs> here you go, sir. Is Cincinnati on the calendar for these 50 days you're doing? Matter of fact, no. Oh, good idea. No, That's good. Not. I'm glad to hear that. Well, even when, God, when, when that happened, our lawyer was saying to the, you know, the, the DA or whatever, like, why do you do this? I mean, it's just not that important. You know, Cincinnati's the censorship laughing stock of the country and the guy's like well you know maybe he can get away with doing that you know up in chicago or something like that but not down here in cincinnati <laughs> <laughs> keeping it clean <sighs> you guys got to give us another tune okay this song we call thumbscrews greg cock calls it blah 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 
Thumb screws by the Jesus Lizard live on Sound Opinions. Wow. <laughs> that was a rampage. You know, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about the late 90s, that period for the band when things were sort of uh, falling apart. Back in the 90s, there was a whole crop of cool underground bands like the Melvins and the Butthole Surfers getting signed to major labels, and then you guys got signed to Capitol Records. Label mates of the Beatles. That's a good point. So what do you make of it, looking back on it now? Smart move? Uh, Well, I don't know how smart or dumb it was. I personally have no regrets. Um, I got a house out of the deal. Uh, Yeah, yeah. it felt like at the time it was sort of time to do something else you know I'm I think it's just natural after you've been doing kind of the same thing the same way for years which we had by that point to just you know just try something else just kind of mix it up and see what happens I mean we ended up you know signing with Capitol and uh making that record with uh shot with Garth Richardson uh I think primarily you know I think what we liked about Garth was a lot of it had to do with he made that Melvin's record uh Houdini which I still brilliant adore to this day yeah and, you know, we made uh, a record that I'm really proud of and, you know, just kind of kept doing the, the, the same things that we had been doing the same way that we'd been doing and we still toured in the van and kept it very minimal as far as, you know, what kind of crew we had. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't have any regrets either. You know, I think there was there was definitely kind of a, a backlash to it and we got second-guessed a lot. And I think when shot came out a lot of people had already decided whether or not they liked it before they even heard it david yeah you were saying that in some ways the band should have ended when mac quit in 1997 Uh, yeah i do i just think that there wasn't much we could do about that we'd signed a contract with capital where we agreed to give them three albums and if we'd broken up when mac left we would have owed them a lot more money than any of us had i always thought that when we were banned with mac that none of us were replaceable so when Mac left, it was really difficult to continue on, but you know we were able to squeeze out another record. And then after that, Capital said, you know, you're not selling a record, you can go home. So we did. So now 10 years later, the original band's back together again, and now the question is, where is this gonna go from here? Are you gonna be recording again? Um, there's no plans, but you never know. <laughs> you just never know. Um, That's the same sort of thing that, that like Brian May says when you talk to Queen today. <laughs> like Banana Rama said, never say never, whoever that was. Baba Ganoush. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a part of me that what? said... I think Romeo Void said that. Yeah, there's uh, a part, yeah. yeah, Romeo Void. There's a part of me that says, oh, why, you know, we did it. You know, let's avoid the cliche of the, the band that gets back together and does stuff. But then there says, well, as long as you're not forcing it and as long as you're not if you're making something that's honest and you know then what's the problem so uh, i don't know we'll see if the money's there <laughs> <laughs> well yeah if you, anyone with a million dollars in a briefcase just comes walking you in need another house Dave? We'll, we'll trade we'll trade you i tell you what the cost of living has gone up substantially since then <laughs> well we're just gonna have to wait and see thank you so much jesus lizard for coming on sound opinions thanks for having us thank you jane g To listen to all of the Jesus Lizard's live songs, visit soundopinions.org. And to comment on our conversation or share any of your critical opinions on the air, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our review of the new album from dance pop duo Yacht.
Support for Sound Opinions is provided by Alltech Lansing, online at alltechlansing.com. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called I'm in Love with a Ripper by a band called Yacht. The new album is called Sea Mystery Lights, but the creative force behind the group has been making music for some time. A fellow by the name of Jonah Bechtolt. He's a musician and a multimedia artist. Uh, Greg, serious inroads into Mm -hmm. the art world. He's had uh, commissions from uh, Museum of Contemporary Art in New York and the Portland Institute of Contemporary Art. He's based in Portland, has recorded several records before this under, under a variety of names. But on his last recording, he paired up with a wonderful singer by the name of Claire L. Evans. And now Yacht is officially the two of them. And this is the record where I think they're they're reaching their biggest audience. They have signed to the DFA, Death From Above label, mm-hmm. which is uh, the company started by James Murphy of LCD Sound System, one of our favorites. And uh, there's a lot of those influences here, Eno, Ferry, Noi, but a lot more that Yacht is bringing to the table as well. This record was recorded in part in Marfa, Texas. Famous, of course, for those mysterious UFO lights. Apparently, uh, Ms. Evans was a science writer and a science fiction fan, as well as being a musician. So uh, this record allegedly is inspired by those mysterious lights from another universe hovering over this small Texas town. I don't know how much of that is actually true, but it's a good story. Let's hear a tune from it. We'll come back and give our review and grade it on the uh, buy it, burn it, trash it scale. This is Summer Song by Yacht on Sound Opinions.
That's Summer Song from Yacht, the new album, See Mystery Lights on Sound Opinions. Yes, indeed, Jim, the paranormal hovers over this record. It is a major, major influence. In a lot of ways, you, you feel like you're, you are floating into space and into the unknown on many of these songs. They bridge electro dance, psychedelia, and anthemic pop in this record in a really intriguing way. They're dealing with this whole issue of mortality, the afterlife, yes, UFOs, the paranormal. But I'm reminded when, when they embrace these topics, and when you, when you hear a line like, it may come as a surprise, but you're not alone. All that you have is not what you own. It's not a place you go. that two ways. That's either a warning or it could be an embrace. Mm -hmm. And I hear it as an embrace. The way these songs are structured, the way these melodies build to these exuberant levels. I'm thinking of the Richard Dreyfuss character in Close Encounters (laughs) of the Third Kind. He's saying, bring it on, baby. I want to walk into that spaceship and find out what's going on. I want to build a mountain out of mashed potatoes. Yeah. I love this record. I think it's a a buy record all the way. Yeah, I agree. It's been an extraordinary summer, I think, for revisiting that period in the uh, 70s when when rock and disco collided. Passion Pit and Phoenix, I think, are both resonant of that era. And I think that Yacht is, is actually summoning up a year or two later when things got really arty in the underground in, in New York. And you had bands like Liquid Liquid and uh, Tom Tom Club. And, and that's this record. I mean, there are weird noises and all sorts of avant-garde experimentalism, but it is always in service to the groove. Uh, and that's what I love about it. You are absolutely right. Right, it is a buy it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Yes, we love that sound, Greg. From time to time here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and drop a quarter in the jukebox playing a song we can't live without. It is your turn. Jim, uh, inspired this week by the passing of Jim Dickinson, a great musicologist, a great musician, a great producer, a great man who raised a couple of really outstanding sons. They'd been guests on the show in its previous incarnation. I'm talking about Luther and Cody Dickinson, who formed a band called the North Mississippi All-Stars with their friend Chris Chu. And uh, the band's debut in 1999, Shake Hands with Shorty, is steeped in the culture that Jim Dickinson helped shape down in the South. You know, there's two kinds of blues in the South, primarily the Delta blues, which is probably the more famous brand of blues that we hear here in the North. Uh, It became the Chicago blues. Uh, People like Muddy Waters, Willie Dixon, Howlin' Wolf, Buddy Guy, Otis Rush came to embody it. And when tourists come to America, that's kind of what they expect to hear, that Mississippi Delta blues sound as it has morphed into the urban blues in the North, in in Chicago and Detroit after World War II. There's a different kind of blues that, that they still play in the Mississippi Hill Country, where Jim Dickinson was from, though. That Hill Country blues has a different sound, whereas the Delta blues was more core based the hill country blues was more based on this drone and about this trance and about drinking and copulating and dancing all night Uh, our favorite things absolutely it was about this atmosphere and there were artists who were really steeped in that culture like junior kimbrough t-model ford rl burnside otha turner 
many of whom are in their 70s, 80s, even 90s still making this kind of music. Uh, the scene was beautifully documented in a documentary called Deep Blues that the late critic Robert Palmer oversaw. If you have not checked it out, definitely check it out. That'll give you a sense of what that sound was all about. And the North Mississippi All-Stars are picking that up and bringing it into the future. They play with some of the members of that hill country scene, and they collaborate with two of the sons of R.L. Burnside, Gary and Cedric, on this particular track that I'm going to play. It is an example of that droning hill country sound brought into the future by the North Mississippi All-Stars. Going down south on Sound Opinions. Going Down South on Sound Opinions by the North Mississippi All-Stars, led by the sons of the late Jim Dickinson. Greg, what do we have on Sound Opinions next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to have an interview and a live performance from She and Him, otherwise known as Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. 
Mary Gaffney and Liz Bustamante did a great job recording the wild Jesus Lizard. And the show was produced, as always, by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with executive production and fearless leadership from Tori Southside Malatia, a man who's neither Fender nor Les Paul. He's really more kind of Dan Electro. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Michael Dale from Franklin, Tennessee, and I really just enjoyed your show on the uh, Supergroups. Two groups in mind that you didn't mention. And it's interesting that I think there's a connection between both, that they were both sort of formed by uh, record executives. The first being the uh, Souther Hillman Fure Band, which is the brainchild of Dave Geffen, where he put together uh, J.D. Souther, singer songwriter, and hung out with the Eagles, and uh, Chris Hillman from the Birds and Burritos, and Richie Fure from Poco. And uh, the other one being Little Village, that I believe was put together by Lenny Warnaker at Warner Brothers. Where you had, uh, you know, the great Nick Lowe on Hyatt, two great singer songwriters, the right reader, guitar player, and uh, Jim Keltner on drums. Now, I really like the record that bands put out. Saw both bands a lot, thought they were great, but man, I tell you, in terms of synergy, there was just practically none. Really, just what you saw was, you know, a singer-songwriter fronting a backup band and uh, each guy doing his own stuff. So, two bands that the uh, record industry thought they could create as supergroups, and really, one of, really neither one of them achieved any critical or commercial success. But anyway, it's just interesting footnote to your story. Thanks so much, guys, and keep up the good work. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Jeff. I'm calling from just outside Charleston, South Carolina, and I just finished listening to your show on uh, Supergroups, which is incredibly entertaining. And I really would like to comment on that uh, the song by, I believe, band was UK. And what a wonderful reminder that serves the progressive rock is just a terrible thing. How it seemed to sell billions of records. Um, I have a wonderful memory and um, spent an afternoon at a record store with a friend comparing airbrush album covers and trying to find just the absolute worst. Just great stuff. <laughs> right. I really appreciate the show and uh, do take care and keep bringing it on. Bye-bye. Hi, guys. My name is Joey. I play in a band here in Chicago called Brother George. Now, last summer, we were on tour and happened to be playing upstairs from Chickenfoot in Boston. Now, this was two and a half hours of incredibly loud double bass, a full semi-trailer, about 20 guys to unload it, and all I could think was how much money it actually takes for this band to suck. Now, on the other hand, we slept in our van, 
our PA went out halfway through our show, and we just turned down and sang above our instruments, making for one of the best crowd responses we had. And my whole point is here, the supergroup misses the idea that it's not how much money you put behind a band, nor the names involved. It's all about how much love the people have for each other and how much love they have for the music. Bye. My name is Stuart Tallbell, and I'm calling from New York City. We happened to catch your last show, and when you had the portion regarding the death of Willie DeVille, I remember seeing Willie DeVille, God knows when, late 70s, I guess, and we have two young children, and we don't usually have the type of music we listen to on when they're around. However, we were eating lunch, and Spanish Stroll came on. And my daughter, who's five years old, jumped up on her chair and started dancing. And she almost knocked over her plate of beefaroni. And we we were surprised that she jumped up and danced. But we were a little angered that she almost knocked over the food. So I think DeVille has a new fan in our five-year-old daughter, Sarah. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.